Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. Ukraine will never be a victory for Russia, for free people refuse to live in a world of hopelessness and darkness. We will have a different future, a brighter future, rooted in democracy and principle, hope and light of decency and dignity, of freedom and possibilities. For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. There you go, Gibbs, our old friend, President Biden. 27 minutes of written text and nine or 11 or whatever, nine, 11 words, was it nine words? I think it was nine. Nine words, and that became, that became the story. And thus commenced the great Warsaw walkback. Yes. Well, we'll talk about this in a second, but who better to parse all of this with us on Hacks on Tap than the great Maggie Haberman, journalist extraordinaire from the New York Times, author of the forthcoming Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and Breaking of America. Maggie, good to see you. David, good to see you. Thanks for having me. Gibbs, you know when I met Maggie Haberman when I was covering a New York City mayor's race. And the reason she's such a great journalist and the reason I so enjoy talking with her is that she cut her teeth cutting uh, uh, covering municipal politics, city politics, man. That's where you. It's true. I'm saying this as an old city hall bureau chief. You learn it all there. So uh, it's, it's it, the best, best possible place to start. Yes. I'm not going to ask what year that was for both of you, but <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm, I might be more willing to volunteer than David. <laughs> so we will let us share some stories about Fiorello LaGuardia. <laughs> but uh, Maggie, what did, what did you, uh, Gibbs and I have been chatting offline about this, so I know what he thinks, but what was your sense of that moment with Biden was, and what has it been overblown or? I'm still sort of figuring out what I think of that moment, candidly, because I don't, it's hard to assess what to make of it without knowing whether there are going to be any ramifications of it. Uh, and, yeah. and right now, I don't think we know yet. What it, it clearly seemed to me was, um, you know, a, a remark that was off the cuff. Um, some would call it intemperate. Uh, you know, I think that there was a desire by the White House to, you know, say this is not policy. You know, as you both know better than I do, anything a president says is going to be seen as policy. So whether there was wisdom in saying that or not, uh, I was a little surprised to see the White House downplay it and then Biden sort of own it again, um, you know, like three days later. Um, that was my main takeaway. I do think it's what Biden thinks. I do think it's not that many degrees away from calling Putin a butcher or all the other things he said, right? It's not really, it's not a huge leap. I think there's a broader question of whether one thinks that the rhetoric that the president is using is advisable, um, given the conflict. And there are some people who think it is. Uh, there are some people who think it isn't. Um, but I think it's it's as revealing as, as anything about how Biden has a lot of long-held views and, and animating impulses, and sometimes his staff has to grapple with that. And isn't this act sort of the 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 old the somewhat old adage of you know a gaffe in Washington is when you when you open your mouth and tell the truth? I mean, the whole world wants to see Putin gone. I, I would assume a considerable part of Russia, particularly given its new economic 
um, robustness, uh, also want to see Putin gone. I, I, I guess I'm also a little, David, as you said, we've talked a little bit about this offline. I, I guess I'm also a little, when we add in yesterday's walk back of the walk back, I'm surprised, and I want to pitch this to you, Maggie, why, I guess I'm surprised, and Murphy and I were talking about this as well, why they didn't just grab a reporter, a Maggie Haberman, and take her to the president and have the president say, now, wait a minute, don't overwrite this. This wasn't about regime change. I don't want everybody to get all crazy Iraq regime change on me. This was a part of the speech where we were talking about the Russian people and I'm one with those Russian people that think Vladimir Putin should be gone. And to me, the process of sort of how that got smoothed over or how that got contextualized might have changed some of the coverage versus presumably some national mm-hmm. security aid that fired off enormously quickly this whole, wait a minute, hold on, wait yeah. a minute. He didn't mean that. Hold on, yeah. change your headlines. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, well, first of all, you said the old adage. The, the old adage that it uh, reflects to me is everyone's strength is their weakness. Joe, <laughs> Biden, Joe's, Joe Biden's strength is, you know, this visceral kind of sense of empathy and identification and and a uh, kind of un, un, he's he's authentic. He says what he thinks. Um uh, and, you know, we we knew that when we bought the package back in 2008, when we put him on the ticket, uh, that there would be moments where he'd say stuff that uh, was not going to be coloring within the lines, because that's what comes with the other part of him, which is that he his his uh, authenticity is um, is a real strength of his. Um, in this case, I think he you know, as as was explained, and as he explained, he'd just been with these kids who had been, uh, you know, uh, separated from their families and uh, were suffering, and uh, and he was he was pissed, <laughs> and he right. and he just sort of uh, let it rip. As Maggie said, we don't know whether there'll be any consequences of it, but two things, you know, one is um, that. Uh, uh, the, you're right, Gibbs. The White House didn't handle it particularly well because they immediately scrambled and they offered kind of a stupid sort of skin back too. I mean, you know, their explanation didn't quite make sense for what he was trying to say. I mean, the truth is generally the best way to go, which is he was pissed and he expressed himself, but it wasn't a change in policy. It was his his message to the Russian people, his sense of identification with them. Um, but um, uh, and the second thing is, it's just we do get obsessed with this stuff, right? And then it becomes a running story, Maggie, for days and days and days. And like, I know it's important; it has diplomatic implications and so on. The American people have sort of moved on. I think the world has sort of moved on. Uh, but we're still playing gotcha on this particular Are you point. trying to cancel the podcast? What do, what yeah, are you really. Playing? I don't <laughs> know. Should, should we just should we go home? I mean, oh, yeah. Wait, we just spent 10 thanks, minutes Maggie. on this. Yeah, good to yeah. see you. Yeah. I'm, a self, I'm, a, I'm a self-loathing <laughs> hack. You're a self-canceler. I don't, yes. So just to be clear, I don't. I mean, the one thing I would say, David, is I don't think it's a gotcha. I mean, I think I think he, he made a pretty dramatic statement. I, I, a gotcha is... The president, you know, curses off mic and then it becomes a big thing. I think making a statement as okay, he did about fair. how 
how, how a, a person who has is leading a war into another country uh, shouldn't be in power is a little different. Now, you can you can argue it um, might be fading in importance. It might not be as, as newsworthy anymore. And I think that that's a legitimate conversation. Okay, let um, me argue that then. <laughs> go for it. Do you want to do, you want to do that over? Um, but um, but David I, but Axelrod, I, take two. Exactly. Um, look, I mean, I think that uh, in terms of coverage i think that you are always going to see reporters particularly reporters who cover the white house and i just want to be clear i'm not one for those listening i don't cover this white house but for those who watch it i watch the white house but for those who who do cover it uh and watch it there's there's always going to be an effort to sort of i think um focus attention and focus stories around the u.s president and so i think that's part of what you're doing i think part of it is that it's uh, it's it's something that you know people who are following the war from something that will remove understand. Um, I think that uh, Robert makes a really good point that you know I it for me it does raise questions about how the White House handled it. Right? I mean, I understand that they were on a foreign trip, and I think foreign trips, at least in my experience, the only ones I covered were Trump's. Um, all of Trump's trips were messy across the board, but certainly the foreign trips were. were often very messy yeah. um but uh foreign trips can be you know different and they're just well, a different this animal. one was so consequential totally and fraught because of it yes, so i yeah. can understand why there was a delay but i do think there's a legitimate question about uh you know why it didn't move a little differently in real time which i think either one of you would have argued for had you been in that white house of course because we never made mistakes no 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 i we often we, we often said that about both of you actually <laughs> yes never never made mistakes yeah no it's true it's and and, and here you are so that's good yeah. we really yeah. got tired of reading it too it was just yeah yeah, yeah. No, no, I, under, I, under, I understand um, but i do think one thing i'm not certain of and i'm just raising this as as again a, an observer yes. uh, and not somebody who covers them directly but i do think that there remains because biden is very insular and he is very insular with a certain group of people who he has known forever i think his newer staff doesn't necessarily feel comfortable going up and trying to get him to deal with something this way i don't think they feel comfortable grabbing a reporter and, you know, who is the one person I'm going to grab on this trip? Because I think this is a White House that um, bluntly is pretty is pretty skeptical of reporters. And so uh, to me, there's these are by no means the most important issues around what happened. But I I do think that's a part of it. Well, I'll tell you one thing. He's not a guy who he's not a guy who no president. It's it's hard. I can, we can tell you from personal experience. No president loves it when a staffer comes and says, uh, "Sir, you kind of screwed up." Yeah, right. And we yeah. got to we got to figure out what to do about it. Uh, I think he he may be particularly resistant to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah. you know, that's not, that's not a conversation. We've both had that experience. That's mm-hmm. not a conversation. That's never a pleasant conversation. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm know. not saying that it would have just been so easy. Had, no, no, know, no, no, no. I understand. No, I, I get what you're saying. Don't make mistakes. Been there, but I'm. All just I'm saying, saying that, is, I just think yeah. Biden may be particularly. Yeah, I think uh, that's right. The shame of it was that. Uh, you know, I think he's done a very good job on Ukraine. He had a really, you know, he's rallied the Western, he's rallied the NATO alliance in a way that we haven't seen in a very long time. He's been very prudent, I think, in in the steps that he has taken uh, throughout this. So, uh, uh, 
that that was too bad. But you know what? He's not getting any credit for it with the American public. If you believe this NBC poll that came out on Sunday, 40% approval. And uh, on Ukraine, I think 27% or something said they had confidence in his yeah, ability to handle that, despite the fact that he's handling it, that he's really actually doing you know, a good job in his experience uh, is paying off. Yeah, Dude. but I think, no, go sorry, ahead, go, no, ahead. go ahead. We can listen to Gibbs anytime we want to I, was- <laughs> I can't listen to him anytime. <laughs> I, I um, no, I was just going to say that I think that um, some of it, and I come back to this a lot, and I think there's, you know, there's obviously reasons why the White House limits this, but there's, I mean, two factors is one, I just don't think that Americans see themselves as directly impacted by uh, Ukraine uh, yes. in, in a way that obviously leadership is and the global leaders are focused on it. But also, I think this is a president who some of this is is who Biden is. And some of this is also just sort of a, a more conventional presidency, a typical normal presidency, whatever word you want to use. But I think that Americans got used to a president who took literally any occasion to make a story all about himself. And so I think that Biden has been less, say, visible um, and I'm not saying that as a as a as a condemnation. I'm just saying, you know, I think that he yeah. doesn't. Well, that was one miss. of his selling points, actually. It right. was, except that at a moment like this, it means yes. the voters are not going to associate you with it. But but please, Gibbs, talk. I didn't mean to. No, cut no, you he, off. Here's my. I want to go back to, to to just the the scene and the statement again because I think Maggie, you had a great point, which is it is really hard to have a president say something and then suggest that that statement isn't a policy statement. That's mm-hmm. that is enormously hard, but I want to posit that it might have been really hard to get him to do what I was suggesting, which is sort of contextualize and color this a little bit because Biden didn't think and maybe he didn't in the end. Maybe this wasn't a gaffe. Right. I, I right. mean, yeah. if we think about this again, to Maggie's point, this White House has labeled Vladimir Putin a butcher, a war criminal, a thug. Uh, it, this to me seems like it was just the latest in that line of, I mean, who, who in the world it would, do we want a war criminal to go back to ruling a country? I mean, that doesn't, that, the, I think the way they'd set this up seems incongruent to think this is a gaffe. And certainly if you look at yesterday, maybe Biden doesn't think it was a gaffe. Maybe, yeah. maybe somebody did walk into that room and say, sir, we need to fix this. And he was like, colorfully told them to leave. Yeah, they're working at the census now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. But I do. I wonder, and, and we are also, the three of us, obviously, enormously unburdened by, the, by being part of the foreign policy establishment, totally. which, which I think freaks out about this stuff. David, you'll remember the debate in South Carolina. Yes. Uh, y- you know. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. When Obama, Maggie, said that he would uh, sit down with hostile leaders. Oh, sure. I remember. Without preconditions, and and everybody jumped at him for being, you know, their whole argument. I might, was I might have been a, I was probably a jumper, if I'm being honest. <laughs> you are, everybody did, everybody yes. did. But remember, remember what he said. He we're, was like, "We're not moving. We're not. Moving we're not walking this back." I meant what I said. <laughs> we're not. I remember we were in the car. I think I yeah. put him. I think we were on the morning call, and he kind of we grabs the phone from me, and he said, "We're not walking this back. Mm-hmm. We're not. We're not. Th- I I meant what I said. We're leaning into it mm-hmm. and go." Um, and I do, so again, I, I wonder in some ways whether a good part of, certainly a good part of Biden, maybe if not his foreign policy staff that thinks, yeah, I, I meant this, I said it, 
I'd do it again. Um, now, maybe, and, and maybe part of this is, given how quickly this thing got walked back, it's clear nobody was thinking that this was going to happen. And, and yeah. I've heard people say, you know, when, when Reagan said, tear down this wall, the foreign policy establishment, you know, kind of shuddered. But my guess is that that looked a whole lot more prepared. Well, it was Department in his text, I think, wasn't it? It was not. No, oh, it was not. My, yeah. my, my, well, wasn't? I wasn't there, but my understanding is it was not in his text. No, yeah. I'm talking about Reagan's speech. Oh, Reagan. Oh, no, no. I think that was in his text. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Uh, Reagan read, you know, I mean, he, yeah. but, uh, but listen, he's in sort of a bind here too, because other than this speech where he obviously flamboyantly stepped out, uh, a lot of this calls for leading by quietly assembling the coalition behind things and by not doing things that are too provocative uh, because you don't want to create World War Three and so on. So, you know, you, you, you kind of hang back and do things behind the scenes on purpose. So that that also explains a little bit of this. But some of it is just, look, some of it is stylistic. I think one of the challenges yeah. and problems here is that people that may, you know, the danger for Biden is that that judgments have formed, have hardened about him, that he's that he's not a guy who's in command, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. even when he's in command. And it has, some of it is presentational, uh, but some of it is just that events are are so are sort of cascading. And another and another way to do this would have been just as a as a sit down interview. Right, he could have done a sit yeah. down interview. Yeah, no, no, but I'm just, I'm not talking. Let's get past the particular event. I'm talking about a larger problem here, uh, mm. which is 41 percent say he's strong, a strong mm-hmm. leader. I mean, these are these are strength is a leading indicator for presidents. Yes, and he doesn't necessarily present strong, and it may be that additions like that are his unconscious way or subconscious way of of sort of projecting strength mm-hmm. you know maybe he thinks that's part of the way to deal uh part of the way to deal with it but one of the you know you said maggie uh americans are not directly uh affected by ukraine you're absolutely right i think people are very s- sympathetic with sure. uh, republicans and democrats been kind of remarkable other than tucker and a few uh to see people on both sides are uh, sort of rallying uh behind ukraine but they people are directly affected by it because of inflation, yes, yes they are. which is the thing that is most on people's uh, minds. And so, you know, one of the things that I think that um, the White House has to be concerned about is as this goes on, I mean, you know, you can't buy bread because grain is, you know, I mean, and, and you know, there's conflicts in Egypt mm-hmm. because they get 80% of their grain from, mm-hmm. uh, from right. you know, there are all kinds of permutations of this that people will feel. And that, I think, has to be a real source of concern because if you are hoping that inflation will go away by November, you know, that, that is even more remote now and it's more likely to go up. But that is tr- so. Acts two things that I. You're absolutely right that yes, this is the way in which Ukraine and the situation um, and the the invasion there relates to people's day to day lives. But people, I don't think, understand that or appreciate it. And I don't know how well I think the the Democrats are articulating that point. Yes. And the thing that and you know if these things don't get articulated, then um, you know if they don't get spelled out and contrary to some criticism, I do think the media has actually described that, or at least some mainstream media, but I don't think it's sinking in. 
I come back often to in my conversations with with people to where the Obama team was in 2012, which is, or at least I should say 2011, actually, because it was really by 2012, it was, it was clarified, uh, at least in the public consciousness, I think. But in 2011, you know, I remember the whole thing from Romney's people heading into the primaries was, uh, you know, the, the, the unemployment rate, you know, if it goes uh, above a certain percentage or doesn't drop below that percentage, I think it was 8%, no president's ever been elected. Uh, and I think the Obama team was very cognizant of the fact that while the recovery was real, that people weren't necessarily feeling it in their lives. Definitely. And, uh, the, and the Obama team was aware of the disconnect between, or the potential for a disconnect, I should say, between its own language and what people were experiencing. Yeah, and we I learned do that think, through hard experience. Yes, I recall, yeah. but I think that this White House is is learning that lesson over and over again and maybe not absorbing it. Yeah. Well, we, we did acutely learn that lesson. In fact, David right. and I had many conversations because, yep. you know, donors would call and mm -hmm. say, I can't believe, in fact, I think David had the conversation with me, I can't believe Robert's on TV and he's, he feels <laughs> like he's talking down the recovery. Right. I don't understand. Right. People aren't hurting. They're, you know, and right. I think- and I, and I would say, Robert's an idiot. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, right. Maintaining his perfect score. <laughs> I think um, I got more than I signed up for here today. I got to go, guys. I'll see you. Yeah, sorry. It's, uh, we're having a little therapy session. Uh, no, there but, you go. But to, to, to the, the economic point, and David, to bring the NBC poll back into it, Biden starts from a precarious position in this. 33% in that poll uh, approve of his handling of the economy. And, and we don't have to say this, but we should underscore that if you're at 33% approval, you've lost a decent number of your own base in this. Yep. This isn't mm -hmm. just yeah. when you're sitting at a yep. 41 or 45% overall approval, you can say, okay, all the Republicans have lined up against me and I've lost almost all the independents at 33%. You've lost a decent number of people that walked into that polling place a couple of years ago and proudly pulled the Biden lever uh, right. in order to get rid of Donald Trump. And and he's lost a bunch of them in a way that has yep. to get put back on track first because you don't yep. get independence before you get Democrat. That's right. People of color, I, I, I don't think, at least I didn't see in this poll, but I've seen in other polls and you've seen a bunch of state polling, black voters in the low 60s for approval with Biden is, a, a you know, <laughs> low 60s is largely sounds pretty good for Joe Biden in terms of approval. If you un unless you figure out that, you know, you normally would be in the close to 90 uh, or at 90 in terms of approval. And so he's got a big, big challenge in that. OK, then let's take a break right here and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show combines in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds like General Stanley McChrystal and Anderson Cooper with Feedback Friday episodes to respond to listener questions about everything from conventional conundrums like asking for a raise at work to doozies like helping a family member escape a cult. It's a great compliment to this podcast. To hear you, you might hear about the latest news in U.S. politics on The Jordan Harbinger Show. You'll learn useful advice from a heavy-hitting interview with, for example, Michael McFall, a former U.S. ambassador to Russia and a colleague of Gibbs and mine, who says he's still being trailed by the Russian government. And that's just the beginning. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to you or a listener, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way, or it could just be discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes 
changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard. Binge, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to start catching up on his episodes. And R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So he put his budget out yesterday, mm-hmm. and it was kind of interesting. You know, th- there's a pro- obviously a project going on here, which is to um, uh, kind of re uh, reconnect with moderate voters. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you we saw it in the State of the Union. It was quite uh, it was quite apparent. And in fact, I spoke to a, uh, one of the swing swing district Congress people yesterday, who said that was. Uh, really important to us because our voters think that the Democratic Party has been untethered and Mm -hmm. uh, too far left and the the State of the Union was helpful. This budget, uh, really the emphasis of his remarks was on deficit reduction, which was kind of uh, striking uh, and how much that uh, he's trying to do. I mean, he's going to pay for some of it with a billionaire tax, which is always popular, and that will be good uh, good with the left. And the other thing is that it increases defense spending, which is already quite uh, robust by another 4% with Ukraine as a focus there. So you do see a sense of him trying to re-polish his credentials as kind of a center-left moderate mm-hmm. president here. You left out one thing, David, I think, I didn't hear you say it, which is the uh, the spending that he allocated for police departments. I mean, you know, he, they, they did a huge emphasis on that, which yes. was, yeah, that was, that was a huge point that, uh, in fact, I think Andrew Bates, um, spokesman for the White House, uh, retweeted Axios on this, that yes. know, we're going to fund, not defund the police yes, departments. Yes, so, yes, yes, um, So that's Picking just, that's just that huge. It's just yeah. like 30 yeah. something billion dollars in there mm-hmm. for that. So, uh, yes, so responding to crime, responding to concerns about the deficit, mm-hmm. you know, uh, robust investment mm-hmm. in the military. Mm-hmm. Those were his talking points yesterday. That's quite different than what we heard in the first year. So, Axe, let me ask you and Maggie the, the practical question, because I'm sure everybody's shelves are are aligned with the budget books that they get every year for the past 10 years. Um, <laughs> I can show you my library. R- exactly, right. Sure. Budgets are- That's what's the, holding up my computer here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't flip through it now, but- um, no, but be, budgets are often the document. You and I remember this, David. We work for months and months on this. They send it to the printer. Of course, you can't change anything. Yes, it still goes to the printer. But these are documents that are often forgotten enormously right. quickly. So as we right. as we layer the point on funding the police and on a billionaire's tax onto the NBC poll about its problems, and again, my earlier point wasn't to get back into the process of gaffes. It's how does this White House use communications and interviews to move this forward? Because short of them getting out there and hitting the road and talking mm-hmm. about a billionaire's tax yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. visiting police departments. I know he did yeah. that in New York yeah. a few weeks ago. But like, how does this White House take the machinery of a White House and start to try to turn that ship and develop a different narrative. Because it's got to be a whole lot more than the dropping of a budget on a Monday in which, quite frankly, the news conference Mm -hmm. was about the walk back of the walk back. The challenge is, and it always is, that 
there's so much that comes through that communications pipeline and trying to control it. Uh, you know, you've got this Ukraine stuff. Yeah, right? exactly. It's a dynamic situation. So, you know, you, you go out and you do domestic stuff and it seems almost uh, beside the point because that's not what's, uh, that's yeah. not what's leading the news here. I guess you could do something on Will Smith slapping Chris Rock and that would trump that. Yeah, other people were very focused on that yesterday. Yeah, yes. Yes. You know, I was thinking about that, Maggie. What if Ted Cruz had strode across the stage at one of those presidential debates and slapped Donald Trump for insulting his wife? Would history have been different? Uh, I think Trump would have been surprised. Uh, it's. Uh, I think it definitely so would have. So would Ted Cruz. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. think... I think it would have been quite a moment, David. Um, I, <laughs> anyway. I, 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 yeah, I, I, without, without <laughs> going too deeply down that road. Um, yeah. But uh, no, but look, I do think that your point about everything in, in response, I, I think that Robert's right. I think you're right. There's, which is, you know, great not taking a position, but it is, <laughs> it is true not to make everything about, about comms here. Um, but I do think that has been a struggle for this White House. And this has been a struggle for this White House for the whole time, which is, kind of the paradox about a president who, as you said, David, you know, was known for his empathy and frankly was known for aspects of his oratory. Um, not that he's a, you know, a tremendously gifted speaker, but that he just came across as a human and came across as sincere and could sell himself. Yeah. And that's not, um, they have really struggled with how to present him, what they want to say. Uh, and I do go back not to, not to beat a, you know, it's all about us dead horse here, but there is a degree to which their mistrust of reporters is a is a is a real factor here. I think that the somebody somebody close to this White House said to me during the transition, um, you know, this is not a group of people that particularly likes reporters, and uh, I don't really know anybody who likes reporters other than sometimes I like them, not mostly. even other reporters sometimes. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> but the um, the but um, but I I do think that they have. Um, I think they have a lot of suspicion, and I think that that, that gets in their own way. Well, also, I think they don't have a lot of confidence about right. putting their guy in front clearly, of them. Clearly. I mean, I think, that that's, I think that's a big piece of this. Yeah. So, he does have probably a win coming up in the next week or two uh, with the uh, Supreme Court appointment. I thought the hearings were pretty interesting uh, from the standpoint that you had the three, three and if you count Lindsey Graham, who probably still harbors secret ambitions uh, for potential presidential contenders, mm -hmm. who basically probably understood that this uh, that Judge Jackson was going to be confirmed and decided to sort of burnish their credentials with the Trumpian right. So uh, Hawley, Cotton, Cruz mm -hmm. made themselves, well, I, I don't know. I think the word's obnoxious probably around issues, you know, that would get uh, gin up uh, that base, but it's it's not likely to change anything. And the only no. mystery is whether any Republicans um, any Republicans break. Does he get any? Uh, will he get any credit boost? Uh, you guys think with the for a a success, but b with the African American community for this historic appointment? Will that help him? I think so. I mean, I don't. I don't know how measurable it'll be or how durable it'll be, but I certainly think in the short term he'll get something of a bump to the extent that anything sinks in. I mean, the thing that I was struck by about the NBC poll was just how incredibly rigid this electorate is. Frankly, I don't think yeah. a whole lot is moving anybody in one direction or the other. Um, but, but I Absolutely. do think it. I do think it helps him, and I do think it helps him. Um, uh, you know, look. 
look competent and as if he is getting something through you know the only republican at the moment and i you guys tell me if i'm missing somebody but who i could see possibly breaking is romney well susan collins and is I, talking enough, to him right. this that's week true. Yeah. that's true i think murkowski would but she's running for re-election she may not Correct. feel she can Correct. But, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what Robert thinks, but I, I do think it'll it'll help somewhat. I think it will, too. And I've, I've been struck by maybe less so in the, the NBC poll, but in a couple of polls last week showed that her approval rating, uh, if you will, or her what I, I forget exactly how they asked the question. Favorable. Yeah. Yeah. Her favorable rating was as high as anybody who's recently been nominated. Uh, and, and I have to assume that that is a, a, a huge number of that or a strong part of that is black voters uh, identifying with a black woman and finally breaking that barrier. I, I do think I, I do think he'll get some some credit for this, whether or not it can quell the challenge that I think he's having again with with lots of voters on the economy, I, I think will be harder to see. Uh, but I do think he he'll get a little bump. By the way, her numbers aren't just being animated by black voters because black voters aren't that they're you know they're they're a tenth or so of the electorate. No, no, absolutely. But I think right. I mean, obviously, yes, strong strong base voters, uh, all Democrats who have probably held their breath for the last you know certainly the last part of the last few months about getting a Supreme Court nominee approved and ready to go. I mean, it, it is remarkable that we had a term that doesn't end until what, June or July. Mm-hmm, yeah. uh, and we'll probably finish this nominee in mid-April, you know, so that- This uh, is the the Coney Barrett plan now. Mm-hmm. You, you speed date right. with it just, right. just, to, just to get them through. Speaking of the Supreme Court, and this, Maggie, we're, now we're going to creep into your- I think I know where we're going with this. Obsessive focus Thank on- Thank you. Uh, well, I mean- <laughs> I mean, no, you meant thus, that nicely. I know. Thus, continuing the therapy session. I, I meant it. I, yes. I meant it in a good way. I meant the best it in a good possible way. way. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. Right. The positive connotation of obsessive. Absolutely. So, so Clarence Thomas's wife, Virginia, right? That's her name. Ginny. Uh, yeah. Ginny. Yes. Apparently, was thick in the January sixth business, and. Uh, Turned up in 20 emails of Mark Meadows that the committee got their hands on uh, and, you know, was very much urging the resistance. Could she end up being a a central figure here? I mean, what's going to happen with that? So there's a couple things, um, and I just want to be clear for your listeners: I am not obsessively focused on Jenny Thomas. I am <laughs> not on her. <laughs> just your your lead-in was a little clunky there, David. I, um, I know. Um, Look, every segue can't be a gem. Okay, that's all right. the, tran- the tra- transitions are really the hardest to nail in writing. Always. Um, yeah. I think that, but I am very focused on January sixth, and I'm obviously focused on on Trump-related activities. I don't know how central she's going to turn out to be. It's certainly. It's it's certainly newsworthy. It ter- let me talk about the substance. Let me talk about the reaction. Uh, I don't know if they were emails or text messages, but there were a bunch of exchanges between her and Meadows that Meadows turned over to the committee. And that's where this information came from. It was it, tremendous reporting by Woodward and Costa um, at the Washington Post. And um, what they show were, were two things. Uh, you know, one was, well, three things, actually. One was Jenny Thomas encouraging resistance. One was Mark Meadows agreeing with her and framing this as a fight of good versus evil. And then the third was Jenny Thomas suggesting that they ought to elevate Sidney Powell, this controversial lawyer who had represented Mike Flynn, 
to be the face of Trump's legal arguments. That's where a lot of people are focused in terms of their criticisms, because, um, you know, some of these cases, if not panels directly, but some of these cases uh, potentially could have gone before the Supreme Court. So that's that's that. Um, you know, Jenny Thomas has a very uh, strong group of defenders among conservatives. She always have, uh, has uh, conservatives, uh, particularly conservative activists around judicial matters, have always treated criticisms of Jenny Thomas as an effort to attack Clarence Thomas uh, and a way to get him to recuse from cases. And so you're seeing a lot of that blowback now. I don't know that she's going to turn out to be a central figure. Um, you know, I think that her views are are pretty well known. I did a story with Annie Carney in 2019 about how she had had this pretty contentious meeting with Trump and a bunch of people in the White House, which is in and of itself was, was a, a really interesting meeting for the wife of a sitting scotus justice to be having where she was making all kinds of demands about personnel changes and suggestions to him, to trump so it's not a surprise that this is how she felt whether she was involved in some kind of planning is a different issue and that's where david you get into a fissure within the january 6th committee itself liz cheney has been very clear that you know we're going to follow the facts where they lead us and and this is where we're going and th- this committee really has acted much more like a prosecutor's office than it has as just a as a yeah, legislative it's been something and, to watch yeah. very very different but they are drawing something of a line at the idea of subpoenaing Jenny Thomas which i understand because it would raise all kinds of questions but i do think it is worth noting they have subpoenaed people for and i'm not advocating they should subpoena her but i am noting they have subpoenaed people for far less people you know with the most tangential of connection who show up in one text message with other, you know, planners of, of the rallies uh, around January 6th ended up getting subpoenaed. But on this one, they've decided, you know, it, it's likely a bridge too far. And I think that's something that they're going to continue to see some criticism Yeah, it'd be for. interesting to see if he recuses himself mm-hmm. on future cases. So on well, the we subject- should also, But we should just, a couple of things to point out too. We don't know if this is the totality of the messages, right? Mark Meadows handed over a series yeah, of these text messages right. and don't. then stopped cooperating with the committee. Right. So we That's don't right. know if there are more. That's a good point. Really good Thomas point. was just for just to say this was at the January 6th rally. Right. Uh, Trump's rally said she left before the end because she was cold. Um, I don't know that I read in those text messages, somebody that was more worried about the weather than they were about who was going to be the next president. Um, and and just to be clear, some of the text messages included talking points straight out of QAnon. I mean, this was yes. not th- no, these were true. these were not sort of like hey, right. you know, right, right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- these were just these were wacky things about oh, they're rounding people up and sending them to Guantanamo. I mean, and, and again, the last thing we should note is Clarence Thomas listened to, heard, took part in, uh, such as he does. The Supreme Court's decision about Trump handing over his papers on uh, or, or, or documents from from that day that he was trying to shield, and the case was decided eight to one with one dissenting vote that of Clarence Thomas. So and, right, and these messages were not. We should just note turned over to the archives, and there's a debate about the idea that they should have been because right. these were gover- government related messages. I don't understand if she was cold. Why didn't she just sidle up next to those people with torches? <laughs> So, yeah. yeah, I think anyway. that's Charlottesville, but sure. Oh, oh that's <laughs> right. Yeah, sorry, I'm getting confused. But another uh, revelation in the last uh, day has been Maggie about the um, seven hour and thirty seven uh, minute gap in which the the White House logs record no conversations by the president when we know he had 
he was having conversations. I remember back in Watergate, the 18-minute gap in the uh, tapes recording the president during a, uh, you know, a particularly sensitive discussion about the Watergate situation. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer. My mother was always pissed about that, thought that was a better th- way for me to go. But it seems to me the absence of those logs, the absence of those calls when he was having calls, doesn't that add to sort of the impression of surreptitiousness that they were trying to hide something? Maybe. So just a couple of things. The and I, need I mean, read- and let me just say before yeah. you answer, I, I ask you that as the author of the forthcoming book, Confidence, <laughs> Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and Breaking mm-hmm. of America. Go ahead and answer. There's a segue. <laughs> uh, that, was, that, was, that was the transition. No, I appreciate that. So just a couple of things. My colleagues and I reported in February that there were these gaps in the phone logs and that the January 6th committee was concerned about it. What, what the Post now has is the actual logs themselves, um, as well as, I think, and I have to go back and look at their story again, um, but I think they also have a separate call diary that was kept by the person sitting outside of, of the Oval Office. Um, what I'm not clear on is there's a couple of things, and, and I, you know, I don't quite know what it is, and I, I'm, I'm measuring my words only because I really don't want to suggest that we know more than we do on this. I really think a problem, David, around a lot of um, the uh, looking into you know, the Trump campaign and Russia and Trump was that people made a lot of, I don't mean the press to be clear, I think our reporting uh, was completely solid, but I do think that um, some of Trump's critics made statements publicly that went beyond what the actual material showed. And so I think that I don't, I don't know what this means. What I do know is he was having calls. I do know that he had a tendency to use people's cell phones. And I do know that, you know, a White House official, a former White House official has said to me, this committee's task of trying to recreate that day is going to be next to impossible uh, in terms of who he was talking to because of his penchant for borrowing other people's phones and acting that way. What I'm not clear on is- And why do you think he does that? I mean, I, you know, germaphobe. I, I, it's definitely not germaphobe. Um, I think that, they would um, be using other people's phones. Right. I was going to say that's the opposite. I think that uh, some of it is convenience. I do think some of it is he has, we know that he has a thing about people taking notes. He has always had a thing about people taking notes and records. So it's, it's hard for me to completely divorce it from that. Where I'm, where I'm not making the leap here, David, is look, there's this gap. The gap in Watergate was intentional. I don't know that these were scrubbed logs, which is sort of what the implication comparing the two implies. I think that this was a White House that kept terrible records on a number of fronts, and we've all explored that. This is how you end up with, um, you know, the, the kinds of the kinds of uh, scenarios that we've seen in the past couple of months with boxes of records showing up at Mar-a-Lago, and you know, including the KJU letters. Um, but it's certainly, um, you know. Uh, it's not good <laughs> that you can't look at who he was talking to and that this White House sort of, it gets, it got graded on a, well, I don't like that phrase. It, I'm, I was about to say it got graded on a curve and it's not really, that, that's not an intentional thing. It's just that there's sort of an asymmetry to everyone sort of says, oh, well, you know, they were, they were bad at keeping records or they were bad at, and they'll, and they'll defend themselves by saying, look, we're so disorganized. Well, get more organized, you know, I mean, handle things normally and they don't. Just to be clear, that there's not like a you don't go into the White House with like where somebody says, "Hey, you know, just in That's case right. you need records, 
let us hand you this packet of post-it notes. There is That's a true. there's a presidential <laughs> there's a records act. Correct. Yeah, right. Correct. There's a yeah. law that undergirds that process. Pretty snickety about Correct. it. Yeah. And they're Correct. pretty. I mean, certainly the lawyers we had, David, were that wanted to make sure you understood yep. everything about that. And yep. I'm sure I'm sure the president yeah. studied that assiduously. No, they were they were right. I mean, there is there is. <laughs> I, that's what I was trying to say, Robert. Is there's no question that this yep. is a this is a White House that disregarded protocol process. The records law, the law um, yeah. you know, we, we, yeah, we, and we know this, this is clearly another example, just in terms of the fact that he was on cell phones and so forth. And there's not a complete record. What I'm loath to do is just take it a step further than that and suggest that this was some intentional effort to wipe something out because I don't know that. You know, I want to ask you about his trip to Georgia, but before this past weekend, but, be, but before we do, they're going to start doing public hearings sometime soon. Yes, they are. Yeah. What what do you expect from those? I mean, do you think we're gonna learn stuff that they've been they've been sort of periodically there've been revelations out of the committee, but presumably they're holding back some stuff. Oh, I think so. Yeah, no, I think I mean I think we know that the committee is hoping to write a, a detailed report. I think the committee learned the lesson from watching the Mueller investigation, which is that a lot of what was happening appeared in the media in real time. Uh and that meant that by the time this 448-page report came out, the public was pretty desensitized to a lot mm-hmm. of what I mean, Trump was helped by that because yeah. if that had all just been a new revelation. Um, so right. I do think they're holding stuff back. The thing that a couple of people close to the former president have said to me in the last few weeks, David, is that as more testimony comes out from people, it's going to get worse for the president. They don't, they don't mean legally. They mean politically. Mm-hmm. And so I expect you will see that when you see public hearings. I think you are going to, yeah, you're going to hear a lot more about what he was up to. I've said this before, but, but it feels like a game of Wordle and the word is Trump. That's where we're going to end. No, up that's, here. well, I think the difference here too is that in terms of what we saw on, um, on Mueller, and and what we are likely to see here, and again, I, I know I just said I don't want to lean too far into more than we know, but with Mueller- It's hacks on tap. Go ahead. Thanks, David, <laughs> for that endorsement. Um, the, I appreciate it. The, uh, what we saw with Mueller was a, a lot of activity, little of which tied directly to Trump, other than the stuff we knew he said publicly. With this, you're going to hear a lot of things that he was telling people to do, that he wanted done, and I think that is going to be a, a yeah. significant difference. Well, and I also think, too, you've got, I mean, we now know Mueller largely made a decision towards the beginning of this that yes, Trump wasn't right. indictable, right? That's right. There's a lot of collection, but the decision, we were sort of playing the Jeopardy version of this, right? We we knew the answer and we were trying to guess the question. Um, I think on this, to, to the points that have been made, I mean, this one will, this has much greater theater uh, capability. And I think they're racing the clock to finish this before Congress, obviously, yes. if they lose yes. control of the House, which looks all but certain, the yep. January 6th committee disappears quickly. Yep. Uh, and I have a tendency to think, you know, Maggie, you said that they're they're subpoenaing everybody, even yep. if they have just, I think this is, I think one of those questions, I went, did you talk to Trump that day? Did you talk to Meadows exactly. that day? Did exactly. you talk to the council that day? Did you talk exactly. to- and right. so I think there's, I mean, I there's a, you know, it's an interesting and, and fascinating forensic race to reconstruct yes, that day. That's right. I actually think the next Congress may eliminate January 6th from the calendar. Well, it's like the 13th floor yeah. of a hotel, right? You just go from 12 to 14. <laughs> wow. <laughs> exactly. So Georgia, he, he went down to Georgia. It seemed underwhelming. Didn't get a huge turn. I, Trump, Maggie, is having to, you talk about cancel culture. He's he, He's sort of canceling. Like he canceled Mo Brooks 
down in Alabama, you know. I think, he, I think Brooks. I think Brooks canceled himself. But that's yes, true. I mean, but that was predictable, right? Just to cut in there for a second. Yeah, go ahead. These are pretty Trumpy primary fields. Almost all of these primary fields. They're basically you know Fifty Shades of Trump. Right. And so he is now. It, he could just claim he was a winner, regardless. But instead of just sitting back and doing that, because he turns everything into a referendum about himself, and he wants to be at the center of attention, he's making endorsements that are are not necessarily working out well for him. Right. So Brooks is yeah. an example of that. Um, you know, the next next up to your point about Georgia, um, not the only one, but a big one is David Perdue, who he was down there yeah, for, supporting you, at for this, governor against Kemp at the yeah, yeah. and and at this at this rally that was you know maybe nine thousand people according to people on the ground but you know his folks are trying to claim it was twenty five thousand. that's according to everyone i've spoken to who was there just not 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 what was happening would they and do so, that just to be clear the plus or minus on nine thousand to twenty five thousand right, is two right, and a half it's, time it's hot it's high and Jesus. so and so i just think that that's i think that he is he is likely just based on current trajectories in for a difficult primary season for the spring primaries that said i don't know what that means in terms of reading the results for what it means for trump it certainly means right. he couldn't get you know that his endorsement was not enough to carry these candidates you know assuming that the results end up the way we think but in order for if we assume trump is running himself which i do then it still gets to the question of, is anybody going to be encouraged by seeing these primary results and take him on? There's a lot of people who are making noises right now about taking him on who we've, we've heard privately talk about how tough they're going to be in the past. Right. And let, let's see what happens after 2022. That's such a smart yeah. point because, yes, Camp is probably going to beat Purdue, but he's not doing it by being anti-Trump. He's, you know, they passed this draconian exactly. election law down there. I mean, he, they're all sort of signifying uh, in Trump's direction, even when Trump is against them. Kemp's also playing sort of the classic incumbent of using the, the budget Correct. and cutting taxes totally. and right. all this yes, sort of stuff yes, yes. in a way that's really... But can we, we tease out a little bit, Maggie, though, if Trump loses the, the Kemp-Purdue race, which... Again, eight weeks from today, but, you know, Kemp is uh, 10, 15 points ahead. Mm -hmm. There's also some interesting races for Congress. Vernon Jones, who mm -hmm. we saw pop up, uh, a, mm -hmm. a former a, a, a former Democrat who, in fact, I think the Atlanta paper recently reported this week that not only a former Democrat, but participated in the Democratic presidential primary, despite mm -hmm. uh, at that point claiming to be a Republican. How complicating do you think this is going to be for him? Because we, we have this running debate here. I'm of the view that Trump really isn't substantively or, or, or substantially, I should say, weaker than uh, he ever has been. I, I, because I think, to your point, he's going to run. Or he he's really going to have a gazillion dollars. I mean, he's going to yeah. have a gazillion I mean, dollars. Yes. And oh, by the way, I don't see who's going to beat him because, to your point, let's say you get tough with Trump. Who's out trumping Trump? We watched this before. Marco Rubio was really terrible at out trumping Trump. The worst was Ted Cruz at out trumping Trump. I'm going to be tough on Trump. These guys were terrible they, because Trump does it better. Were you guys uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm fans? Are you Curb Your Enthusiasm yeah. fans? Yeah. Famous episode where Larry David is at a Seder. And uh, his someone spills a glass of wine and his mother-in-law sits there and says, somebody get a sponge and doesn't move. <laughs> and I feel like that is basically the approach to Donald Trump over and over again is everybody is sitting there looking around saying, somebody get a sponge and go take Donald Trump out. And so uh, because of that, that's the main reason, Robert, I think he's not 
particularly weaker? Do I think that he is, I think that he is weakening himself with the constant focus on 2020. That I think people are tired of hearing about it. I think you talk to even his hardest supporters, even the people who work for him, and they want him to stop. But does that mean that a bunch of voters in a split country where everything is up or down and politics are defined by who you're against, that people are going to just suddenly walk away from him because of that? I see no evidence of that whatsoever. And yeah. I think that I think that became very clear a couple weeks after January 6th. We got to take some letters, man. It's listener mailbag. So, as happens... On Hacks on Tap from time to time, Gibbs left his bar stool and I think went off to the restroom. So we're going to have to do this mailbag ourselves. But there's a question here that you are uniquely qualified to answer. Oh, great. Because uh, you're the author of Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. This is a question from William. Politico just reported that Trump's Save America PAC now has $110 million in the bank, which is more than the RNC and DNC combined. And he doesn't seem to have to spend it any of it, uh, spend uh, uh, much, if any of it, on politics. Is Trump legally obliged to do anything with that cash? Or can he legally blow it on all, uh, <laughs> blow it all on golden toilets? More on lawyers, maybe. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that I think probably toilet shopping is not high up there. Um, <laughs> he's not legally obligated to do anything with it other than, you know, comply with the FEC guidelines. And the FEC has been pretty weak at this point. Um, but, you know, you would know better than I do, David, but I think that he can use this for a bunch of different things um, without becoming a candidate. And he's um, been made aware that he needs to be careful about not being too frontal. There's already been an FEC complaint filed by a political group saying that he's blown past when he should have been a declared candidate. What he's not doing with this money, and this is really important, He's not helping other Republicans for the most part, and that is starting to really upset other Republicans. And so whether he he hurts himself by not helping others, I think is an open question. But why isn't he? Because he doesn't like spending money on other people. Like it's just that it's that simple. You know, he doesn't feel a need to. He can get he can get other uh, other groups to. He likes having a big figure in that account. It's it's like having people contribute to his foundation or whatever. And, and then give the money away himself. It's an, it's, there is another people's money quality to this, yes. So uh, I, I, I'm going to assign to myself a question, but I want to engage you in this uh, discussion because mm-hmm. I actually think it's, it's an interesting sort of mm-hmm. element of the midterms. Christopher asks, if SCOTUS overturns Roe in a radical fashion, how does that affect the midterms? I think about this a lot. Because particularly in these suburban areas, uh, this could become a rallying point for voters. I mean, one of the problems that you see in these polls is lack of democratic enthusiasm. Uh, the Supreme Court hasn't in the past. I mean, it's been more of a rallying point for the right than the left. Uh, but uh, if there is a really, really profound change in laws governing abortion rights, you know, I'll be watching closely to see how that impacts turnout, particularly in those suburban areas where there are going to be some very, very significant swing districts. But what do you think? I agree with you. I was actually just thinking as you were talking, I was thinking back to the 2018 midterms uh, where obviously yes. Democrats did well. But one point that they never used, and I still don't totally understand why, is they never really talked about the fact that Donald Trump essentially gave a tax cut to the rich. Um, it was like a, like an item five. Um, an issue like abortion is much more visceral. Uh, it is going to animate a lot of women voters. It will animate some some men. Um, 
particularly in the suburbs, uh, I, I do think that it will it will impact on a on a gut level in a way that you just you know after two years of COVID and everything else happening in the world and the economy, um, you're seeing a lot of worn out voters. That would motivate a lot of worn out voters. I'd say two things about this. One is I can see Chief Justice Roberts working hard to try and blunt the sharpest mm-hmm. edges of this to try and avoid it becoming that kind of issue uh, in the fall. And secondly, where it may really be felt is in some governor's races, mm-hmm. uh, because point. the states are going to be much more important yep. in uh, developing policy relative to abortion rights uh, if the court goes in the direction it seems to go. That's a but, great point. We will have we will talk about this some more. I hope you'll come back. Uh, always great, always great, great to chat with you. And uh, I we've talked about the book several times. When's the date? <laughs> I When's the publication that. date? October fourth. October fourth. Well, okay. it's a sure bestseller, and everybody's going to be wanting to don't jinx to me. See. No, no one has uh, studied Trump longer and harder uh, in his politics than you. Damning me with faint praise, David, but thank you. I appreciate <laughs> no, that. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, whether you like it or not, this guy is a uh, significant figure in American yeah, political history, for better or worse. Yep. And you've been there for that journey. So look forward to that book. Maggie, we'll see you next time. Thanks, David. 